This is it, final ones. It's not that uh, we're done studying David's life. It's that this was the early years of King David, and uh, he's about to go over the hill. So uh, the early years of King David are about to be done. That doesn't mean that he gets to 40. Life expectancy was less back then. Okay, he dies at 70. Uh, over the hill for him actually happens at 37. You'll see why 37 is the age coming up here in a minute. Uh, so we've gone after the early years. This series was called uh, Developing the Lion Heart, Growing the Lion Heart. And, you know, we've understood that this thing that this video just talked about, about our, our lives, we're called to be worshipers. You know, in Hebrews, and Jen and I were just reading this morning together, um, and, and in Hebrews, when you get to like chapter uh, 8 to uh, uh, up through chapter 10, it's referring to the church and telling us how we're supposed to live our lives. And when it refers to the church, it calls us by one name, worshipers. That's what it calls us, the worshipers. And that's what we are. We're called to worship. The purpose of all humanity, whether you're a business person or a little kid or whether we're male or female or no matter what it is that we're into, there's one common purpose for all of us, and that's that we're to know and follow hard after God. That's what we're about, no matter what we're doing. And the thing about David was that is exactly what this guy was all about. It didn't matter if he was being chased through the desert by Saul or whether he was running after bears and lions to protect the sheep or whether he was staring at the stars in the sky or whether he reigned as king over Israel. In all of it, it didn't matter. All of his circumstances changes, but one thing didn't change, which was his purpose and his desire, and that was to know God in every one of those circumstances, to know and follow God. That was it. And so God chose him as this man and then grows him into a man who can continue to pursue God no matter what the circumstances are. Even if he has all the immense power of being king over all of Israel, he still will pursue God because God's developed that heart, that seed of faith and that seed of desire. And so this whole uh, early years of King David's series has been about God getting him to the spot where he can count on him to continue to pursue him even when he puts him on a throne. You know, because that's when we know where we're really at. It's one thing when we still need God, but once we're given all the power and we're given everything we need, will we still go after God? You know, we ask for God's blessing, but, it, you know, can God give it to us without it going to our heads? And that was the whole point is developing that in, in David. So uh, today we're talking about the, the, the end of that. David, actually, we started with the beginning when David was anointed to be king, uh, voted least likely to succeed, is what we called that shepherd boy out there, anointed to be king. And today he becomes king over all of Israel. Okay, and, But it's not just that. It's that it goes a step further about him doing what it is that he's called to do as king. And we'll see that in a minute. But the cool thing is, is today we see David and our, our, our sermon today is Jerusalem, worship with abandon. And there's this awesome thing that happens where when someone follows God over time, people can start to see it. And you see what happens here. You know, um, Saul's son, who had been king over all of uh all of Israel. David was king over Judah. We remember at the end of our last sermon, that guy got killed by his advisors, Ishbosheth. And so now there's a vacancy in the throne over all of Israel. And this is what happens. Chapter five of Second Samuel. I want to read just the first few verses here so you can turn with me to Second Samuel chapter five. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. That's where he had been uh, king over Judah and said, behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. This is awesome. Two things here. Um, 
Notice that David, they were like, even when Saul was king, you were actually leading us. Notice that? You know, we don't need a position of authority to lead, do we? Not at all. What was Jesus' position? He doesn't really have a position. In first service, somebody said, well, he had a position. His position was servant. That was his position, you know? And from the role of servant, Jesus led the greatest movement to touch our earth, you know? And what's amazing about David is David lives as if he's king of Israel his whole life. He cares for Israel. He loves Israel. He fights for Israel. He protects Israel. Why? Because he loves God, and this is the people of God. And so he's fighting out there. And what's cool is, is that these people, they see it in David. You know, they said, we heard that God had anointed you to be king. You better believe they were watching him. It's just like when, when we carry the name Christian, puts a target on it, on us, doesn't it? People are watching. What does that mean? What does that look like? And they're watching. David's anointed to be king and everyone's watching him. What happens when Saul's chasing him? What happens when he has the chance to kill him? What happens when, what happens when, what happens when? And they saw it and they saw what what David did, and they are delighted. So in verse 3, it says, All the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. The best kind of coronation of a king, the best kind of installation of of a leader among us, the, the best kind of inauguration of a president is this kind. It's the kind where it's almost a formality because the person's already functioning that much in it, and you're just naming what is. You know, that's what, that's what Paul, when he's instructing how to select elders in a church, he's like, find the ones who are elders and then decide that they're elders. You know, like, duh, of course they are. They already are. And that's what's happening with David. They're like, you've been king this whole time. You haven't been in the position, but now we're happy to put you in the position. And it wasn't just a formality though. There was actually a covenant. And you might remember at Orphan Sunday, the big difference between covenant and contract contract is that that's a business relationship but covenant is a family relationship that's about the relationship not just about the product not just the exchange of goods and so they're making this deep covenant with david where he's saying i'm going to serve you i'm going to love you and they're like we're going to love you and we're going to follow you and and off they goes and here it says when that happens verse four david was 30 years old when he began to reign that was actually six and a half years ago seven years ago when he reigned in in uh Hebron, it says, and he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, so which is right now when he's just about to start reigning in Jerusalem, he reigned over all of Israel for 33 years. So he's about 37 years old right now as he takes over as king over all of Israel. That's the early years of King David. Wrap it up, put a bow on it, series over. Except the series isn't over because we still have a message today. And the reason we still have a message today, the reason that this is standing in front of us is because of this. Because this isn't a story about David. This is a story about God. And so David landing on the throne isn't the end of the story. The whole reason why God chose David was because David was the one who would help the people and God meet. That was the whole point. You know, um, God's, you know, in the Garden of Eden, of course, what God wanted from all of us was that fellowship with us, that connection with us. And we went the other way. We had a choice, and we went the other way. And ever since then, God was working to bring it back together. And he set up Israel as his chosen people to help establish that connection between God and his people here on earth again. 
And he told Abraham that he was going to be the father of this chosen nation. And he told Abraham that he would give him a son and he gave him Isaac. And he made him go to this foreign land. What was the land that he took him to? He told, he said he was going to give him this promised land. What was it? The land of Canaan. Okay. Which was Israel. So he takes him to the land of Canaan. And there he tells him to take his son and to put him up on an altar, which happened to be on a mountain. Anybody know what mountain it was? Mount Zion. Okay, this is mountain that would be an, it's an epic mountain. We'll hear it all about it all through the scriptures. And he takes him up there and he says, give him to me. Now, years later, they, you know, all his descendants go to Egypt and then they're in slavery. And then God brings them out of slavery through Moses and then leads them across the desert with Moses. And then he has Joshua go into the promised land and he gives them a command. He says, this is the land that I promised you. What you're supposed to do is you're supposed to completely clean the enemy out of this land. And we talked about that last week, clean the enemy out of this land. And then you're going to establish a covenant with me in this place. And you will be a blessing to all the nations because you will be my chosen people. And I will meet with you there and make a covenant with you there. They failed to do that. Next is the, the period of judges when each man did what was right in his own eyes. That was ugly. That was ugly. Nasty. And then after that, they realized that they were getting their tails kicked by all their enemies. And so what did they do? They were like, we need a king. And so they hire Saul and they follow Saul. But Saul lives by his sword and dies by his sword. And now God looks at David and he says, but I'm going to bring fulfillment to my plan. I am going to establish a man who it's not going to be about him and it's not going to be anarchy where everyone does what's right in their own eyes. I am going to fulfill what it is that I promised that this place is going to be a place where God is worshiped by the people and God leads his people and makes a holy people, a chosen nation. And so when David gets crowned as king, it's not the end of the story because David never really wanted to be king. That wasn't his big intention. And David being a king wasn't a big deal except for what it was that David was supposed to do which was finish the job that God had started to clean the enemy out and to establish the covenant with God in this place. So when David gets a crown put on his head and everyone says, you're king, what do you think the first thing he does is? He's sitting here in Hebron and he says, I'm going to Jerusalem where Mount Zion is and I'm going to clean out the enemy. Okay, so his first act is he goes to Jerusalem where it's inhabited by enemy, Jebusites at the time, okay? And the Jebusites, they strutted around and they said, no one can ever uh, attack Jerusalem because, you know, it's in between the Kidron Valley. There's the, the Genon Valley and there's this, uh, like right on the edge of it is, uh, here's Jerusalem and there's these walls that come up and no one, like any enemy coming up is going to get crushed by us. And they even puff their chest out and you can see it in the text here. They say, even the lame and blind could beat David if he tries to come up and take Jerusalem. And then like within like two verses, it tells us, so David goes up through the water shaft in the city and he takes over the city. I love that. You know how many battles the, the, the Old Testament describes in great detail telling us all of what God did. And in this one, it's just like David became king and then he took over Jerusalem, you know, which is like the big moment, right? Like we've been waiting for Israel to be in control of this place and establish it. And it's just like, it's just done. Why? Well, if you look at verse 10, it tells us why. Verse 10 says, and David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. God of hosts was with him. What's God of hosts mean? Anybody know? That's a military term. That is that God is the Lord of the angel armies. 
Okay? So God is the powerful one with all the angels on his side. And David had learned throughout his life to trust God and to walk with God. And what he understood was that when he faced a battle, he didn't fight it on his own. You know? When he faced Goliath or the bear or the lion, he didn't face it on his own. And so by the time he becomes king, he is a king who learns to depend on God. And so what happens is he takes out the Jebusites, but then the next thing is, is who are the, who are the biggest enemies that you always hear about with David and Saul and all those guys? Who were their big enemies? Philistines. So the Philistines catch wind of the fact that David has just taken over as king. Now David has some history with the Philistines. First he toppled their giant. Okay, then he actually came and fought with them while he was being chased by Saul. Well, actually, he killed a whole bunch of them before that. And then, for some reason, they let him fight with them, I guess because they knew he was a good fighter. So they're like, yeah, okay, Uh, we're all right if you're a traitor as long as you're on our team. You know, and so, like, so then he came and fought with them while Saul was chasing him. And then after that, they killed King Saul and they killed David's best friend, Jonathan. And now David is king. Okay, and so what they're saying is, look, we've been a thorn in the side of Israel this whole time and we've been besting them all over the place. We better nip this one in the bud because we know who David is and we know all about this guy and we've seen him do things. So we got to take him out quick. So he took over Jerusalem. We better get this done. So they charge at Jerusalem. Okay, and what we're told is, is that David goes up into Jerusalem and he locks down in the stronghold of Jerusalem. You know what a stronghold is, right? That's like an entrenched spot that's totally protected, that's like impenetrable. It's the safe zone. It's like, you know, when if the, if the bombs come in, where the president goes, when he goes like down that elevator, way, way down, like they show in the movies. I don't know even what that place is called or whatever, but like when you go way down in the shaft and the protector, that's the stronghold where you can't get to him, right? And David goes into Jerusalem, into the stronghold. You know the Bible talks about strongholds in our life? There's the strongholds that the enemy can get in our life, where he we get bitter about something, or we get a habit of sin in our life, or there's a philosophy that we bought into that wasn't a godly philosophy. And Satan gets so entrenched in there that any time he wants to pull our card, he pretty much can, because he found that spot where he just sets up shop in our life. You know, and it talks about just we need that stuff cleared out. But the thing is, the enemy's not the only one who can set up strongholds. God sets up strongholds. And here's a picture of David in his stronghold in Jerusalem where God's protecting him, where he's not believing lies. He's believing truth. He has the godly doctrine that he holds on to. One of the doctrines for all of us that's a stronghold is the doctrine of grace. Every time that the enemy comes to us and tries to accuse us and get us running around the room like, oh, you got to do this and you got to do that. Forget it. I'm saved by the blood of the lamb. How you like that stronghold? You know, try to conquer that one. You know, I don't, I don't need your help. I don't need your accusation. I don't need pride. I don't need shame. I just need Jesus. You know, that's a stronghold if we hold on to it. You know, and so David goes into his stronghold and he starts to pray because the Philistines are coming at him, at him and he says, God, should I go? Should I go and fight him? And there's this awesome line in verse nine. It's or in uh, sorry, verse 19. It says, go up. For I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. I love that word, certainly. I will, you know what this is? God is saying, David, man, I have been waiting for centuries now for someone to take me at my word that if sin is in the camp, if the enemy's in the camp and you want to run it out of camp, go in the name of the Lord and I will annihilate that thing. I've been waiting for someone to take me at my word. Do you think I'll show up when you go to battle the Philistines? You better believe I will. I told you guys hundreds of years ago to take care of that. Step out there and I will certainly get it done. 
You know, for some of us, we need that message today. Where we've had the enemy setting up strongholds in our life. There's been all that junk that's in our life. We've been depressed because we don't see that happen. Or we've been discouraged because we don't see that. Or, or there's stuff that was gunked up in our family or in our neighborhood or in our own lives. And we haven't been able to get past it because we've been fighting in our own strength. And God is saying today, I will certainly knock that stuff out. If you will actually go, if you actually want to go and fight that stuff, I will certainly gladly clean the enemy out of your life. Okay, so that's what's going on. David goes to battle with the Philistines. What do you think happens? It's like someone pitches the ball to the running back behind the line, and he goes running up to the line, and all of a sudden, boom, there's no line. It says that, that, that uh, God went out in front of David like a flood against the Philistines. You know what a big flood, like a picture like a, tie, a uh, you know, just a tidal wave coming in and that's what happened to the Philistines. Gone. Gone. Second time they come back and they want more. Okay? And so David says, hey, should I fight him again, God? And God says, this time I want you to flank them. Go around the back. And when you get to the back, wait till you hear. You're, you're going to be in these balsam trees. And if you listen real carefully, wait. And you'll hear at the top of the balsam trees the sound of marching. And when you hear that sound, you will know that the God of the angel armies has gone out in front of you. What? That's so cool. So he's like, when you hear the sound of marching, I am going with the angels out in front of you. And again, boom, Philistines just gone. And so what hasn't happened in centuries, David is beginning to do. He takes over Mount Zion. He cleans out the Jebusites. Anytime that the Philistines come to battle, he depends on the Lord and the Lord wipes them out. And it is cleansing the land of the enemy. He is making a sacred place, a holy place, cleaning out the enemy. But that's only one half of the equation. It's not just cleaning out. It's also what you fill that space with. And so David now... Now that he's clean, cleaning out the enemy, moves toward chapter 6. And this is, this is the uh, second point today. So turn with me to chapter 6. It says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bella Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Now you remember what the, the picture of, of the ark, you've seen pictures of it or you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark or whatever, you know, and you see that there's that gold box and on top of the gold box, there's a lid and then there's an angel on either side bent over like this with the wings going forward. They're the cherubim. And on top of that is where the presence of God was to sit the blue flame. That's you know, referred to as Shekinah glory, God's presence with them. And so they know that wherever the God, wherever the ark is, that's a picture that God's presence is with them and no enemy can stand against them. No enemy can stand against them. And so they're all excited. It says in verse three, and they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahoy, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahoy went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. That was a big party, you know. Maybe next Sunday when you guys walk in, we should give it, you know, like in music class in elementary school, they give you each an instrument, you know, and you're just shaking and banging and it's like all that craziness, you know, and they're all going before the ark of the Lord and they're all shaking their castanets and doing whatever and having a big party celebrating the fact that God's going ahead of us. This is awesome. And then something happens. Verse six, 
It says, and when they came to the threshing floor of Nikon. Now, when you come to the threshing floor, you, when you see that word threshing floor, it should just all of a sudden set off a thing. Wait a minute. Threshing floor. What does that mean? You know what the threshing floor is, of course, right? That's the place where you beat the wheat and, and it loosens everything up and then you throw it up in the air and the seeds that are heavy fall down, but everything that's light and worthless gets blown away in the wind. So he separates the wheat from the chaff. He separates the good stuff from the bad stuff. And so all across the scriptures, the threshing floor is when God separates from people the bad stuff out of the good stuff. So here they are. They're praising God. They're bringing the ark in. And then it says when they got to the threshing floor, and then you got to just say, "Uh uh-oh, what's about to happen? You know, and something will happen. Here it is. It says that when they came to the threshing floor of Nikon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God, and he took a hold of it for the oxen stumbled. He grabbed a hold of that because the oxen stumbled. Now, here's, here's two, two things going on here. First of all, how were they supposed to carry the ark? By poles on their shoulders, the priests, okay? So there's those ringlets on the side of the, of the ark, and they put the poles through them, and the priests put them up on their shoulders, and they carried it. We're not told why it was put on a new cart with oxen. It was a new, new way to worship or something, a new way to do this thing. I don't know. It was cool. I, why, would you, why do you have oxen carry something instead of carrying it yourself? Because it's easier. Now listen to this principle. It's a very important principle for us to hold on to in this. The easy way in worship is not the right way in worship. Ever. And no one else can worship for us. Humans have to carry worship on their shoulders. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is our spiritual act of worship. That's what Romans 12.1 says. Humans were the ones who were uniquely created to worship God and carry the burden of worship on their shoulders. And when we give that to oxen in order to make it easier, when we give that to someone else and farm worship out to someone else, it doesn't work. Each one of us in this room needs to carry the burden of worship on our shoulders. If we will connect with God and give him what is due, then we have to bring to God our own selves and say, God, you're going to rest on my shoulders and I'm going to help carry this. Each one of us is a worshiper and each one of us is responsible to help carry. They lost that. And because of that, there was a whole culture there that, that made things bad. There's, there's certain sins. Josh and I talk about this regularly. There's, there's sins which are just the actions we do that are, that are not okay. But then there's iniquity. And you know what iniquity is? That's deep-rooted sin. That's like a cultural sin. And when, you're, when the whole context of what we're doing isn't right, you can try to do the right thing on top of the bad context, but then you still get caught sometimes because the context isn't right. You know, When you live in a really rough home and you're trying to do the right thing, Sometimes it's still really difficult to do the right thing because you're in the rough environment, right? And what happens is is they're carrying the ark the wrong way. And because of that, Uzzah, when he sees the ark slipping, he goes in and he tries to touch and, and stabilize the ark. But is it okay to touch the ark? No, not okay. His intention might have been right in the moment, but the whole situation wasn't right. So therefore, their immediate intention isn't everything. God actually cares about how we worship. You realize that? Not just in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. Paul gives explicit instructions on how we worship and how we engage in worship. And God is a holy God and will be worshipped appropriately. Watch what happens 
You might know it. It says Uzzah put out his hand to take a hold of the ark and, and took a hold of it, and the oxen because the oxen stumbled. Verse seven, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. God wasn't joking around. And we might say, what is that? Was God like, is that vengeance where God's like, you know, get your dirty paws off of me? You know, is that the attitude of God or like, who do you think you are? It's, that's not the attitude of God. Here's the thing. What happens when your president, and I'm, I'm not referring to anything right now. What happened when Jimmy Nixon, you know, what happened when, 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 the, when the, you know, I'm not a, Jimmy Nixon, Richard Nixon, sorry. That was, that was a conflation right there. Somebody give me some other names to throw in the mix while I do that. Yeah, yeah okay. Thank you. Holy cow. <laughs> Sorry, Jimmy Carter, if that was you that I put in there. <laughs> George W. Jimmy Nixon. George W. Obama, Jimmy Nixon, Carter. Wow. So what happens when he says, I'm not a crook, but then you find out there's corruption. What does that do to the confidence of a nation? It rocks it, right? What happens when you find out that a judge was taking a bribe and you say there's no justice around here? What happens when God lets sin in the camp and we find out that God's not holy anymore? See, that's the nice thing about God is he'll always remain holy and he'll always remain righteous. And that's why we can't mess around because God's not going to let us mess around. Because he won't be duped, and he won't be bought, and he won't be coerced. He's God, and he's holy, and sin is sin, and he's holy, and it is what it is. And if our sinfulness tries to deceive God, it's not going to work. And that's not just an Old Testament principle. You remember what happened in the New Testament. This is after the resurrection and Pentecost and all of that. You remember there's those two people, Ananias and Sapphira? Remember what we, we heard this morning, worship services used to be? What did worship services used to be initially? Bringing the offerings, right? And so here come Ananias and Sapphira, and they bring their offering to God in worship. Here, we're giving you what's yours, but there's something deceptive. There's something wrong about it. And what happened to them? They died. That was New Testament. That was New Testament. God doesn't mess around. Integrity is a big deal. Honesty, transparency with God is a big deal, you know? And holiness to God is a big deal. Okay, so... As we move on, uh, that, that's what happens. And David, in verse 8, was angry, it says, because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. David was like, God, what are you doing? We're trying to worship you here. You know, we're doing everything we can. And you're going to get us on a technicality? You know? Hey, you know, why are you throwing the flag now? You know, when we're, and, and you can tell David just doesn't understand it. He can't handle it. He gets mad. And have you ever been at that spot where you're working hard, and then it seems like, really, God? Like, you're going to get me on that one? You know, but God's saying, if we want to go deeper, you got to go through the threshing floor. You got to go through because the extent to which we give ourselves to God is the extent to which we can receive from God. True intimacy is not about being good at music. It's not about being good at teaching the Bible or understanding it. True intimacy is letting God be the king over every part of my life. It's exposing myself to God and saying, if we're going to be one, then that's going to be one in my fingers and in my knees and in my heart and in my head and every part. So God, I'm opening myself up. Come in, look around, root around, see what you can find that is separating you from me and clean it out so we can get closer. That's what real intimacy is about. That's what real worship is about. 
That's what our lives are about. And so, so David at first was frustrated because he couldn't understand. And we always have a hard time understanding when God does stuff that, that we wouldn't do. <laughs> so then it doesn't make sense to us. So, and then David says this. Um, it says, and David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark come to me? When was the last time you saw David afraid? I've never seen, never before this in scripture do you see David like afraid. He's never afraid. Why? Because he always has God on his side. And in this moment, he's like, maybe not. God just broke out against us. And that's that moment of realizing, I got to be careful. I can't just assume that God and I are good all the time. I got to ask and, and I got to follow and obey. Okay. So anyway. And David was like, how can the Lord come to me? So verse 10, so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. I love this. David's afraid to have the ark come to him, so he gives it to this guy. You know, how do you think that guy liked that? Oh, thanks. Okay, appreciate it. You know, well, I'll just be your guinea pig. Put me in the lab here, you know. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. That's the way it works, isn't it? Wherever the presence of God is, there's the blessing, which is why the principle is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things will be added unto you. You know that song we sing here sometimes, Open Up the Skies, uh, and, um, and it says, uh, we don't want blessing, we want you. And the point is that we're not seeking for the blessing of God, we're seeking for God himself. And if we get God himself, all the blessings will take care of themselves. You know, God will make us see blessings all around us if we have the presence of God. But if we don't have the presence of God, then all the blessings of God will never satisfy us. And Obed-Edom, he ended up with the presence of God, the Shekinah glory, sitting in his backyard, not by any doing of his, but just because David was afraid to handle it, and he ends up getting blessed. So David changes his mind really quick. In verse 12, it says, And it was told King David the Lord had blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Thanks, Obed-Edom, for being the lab rat. We see that there's blessing there. We're taking the ark back from you. And so he takes it into Jerusalem. And of course, the whole reason is because that ark wasn't there to bless Obed-Edom. It was to bless the world through the nation of Israel in the place where God had called it to rest, which was on Mount Zion. And so David brings it in and it says uh, right here in verse 13, we get into it. You got to hang in there with me, okay? Verse 13 right here, it says, and when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, two important phrases, bore the ark six steps, how are they carrying this thing now? On their shoulders the way they're supposed to. There's no shortcuts in worship. Got to give your heart to God. You got to do it the way he says. We got to know the word and how it says to worship him. We got to submit to the word. Do it the way he tells us to when we engage in relationship with him. And then we'll find that we can move. And it said every six steps that David would sacrifice another animal in front of it. Okay, we don't do animal sacrifice anymore. Praise God. Jesus took care of all of that. You know, but here's the thing. Six steps. What comes after the sixth step? Seventh step. What comes after the sixth day? Seventh day, which is what? The Sabbath day, the day of rest, which is made for connecting with God. And see, there's this rhythm that's been in there since the beginning, this huge thing, that when we can want to approach our relationship with God, we have to reset. There's regular rhythms in our life that are supposed to slow us down. You know how, you know how often or how, how difficult it would be for every six steps you have to make, you have to offer another sacrifice to God. You know how slow that journey must have been? But the whole thing is, 
is if we get to that seventh step and we don't check back in, we're going to get off base. You know, Hebrews, where it talks about us being worshipers, one of the things it says is do not neglect the gathering together with the believers. And the reason is because it talks about us encouraging one another and pressing each other on all the more as we see the day approaching. And what it's saying to us is this. It's saying that when we get to the end of that week, I don't know what all happened in my week, but I better get back to the spot again where I'm like, all right, God, cleanse me, forgive me. I'm sure in the last six steps I didn't do it right. So cleanse me today, God, and bring me back, recenter me under the atonement, wash me and set me clean again. And we need that rhythm in our lives. And sometimes it'd be a whole lot easier to not rest in God, but to just keep going. Because I'm, I'm in the swing of things. I'm in the groove and I got too much going on. I'm just going to go. I don't have time in the morning to set up shop with God and, and do this thing where it's the Bible and prayer. And Sunday morning, I don't have time to get in there and all of that. But those rhythms are in our life to protect us and to keep us rooted in Jesus. And David understood that principle and was going after it hard. So they, they sacrificed the animal every six steps. In verse 14, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. What does it mean to dance with all your might? Dude was working it, working it, all his might. And David, someone came up to me and said, the pictures I have of dancing with all your might, you need to give me more. Explain to me what that kind of dancing looked like. And I'm like, oh, right, yeah. You know, picture like grabbing hands in a circle and going around in the circle and then doing the like, ah, 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 you know, like like all of that and like praise and like this is not like, you know, you're not going clubbing here. This is, this is something very, very different. This is like we are giving praise to the Lord. We are worshiping him and this is work. You know, if you go uh, right now, if you go on, se- on Friday, night to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem at Mount Zion, the wall on the side of where the Temple Mount is. Every Friday night, you'll see all these young men show up and they have their different colors for, I don't know what it is, like their frat or something. It's their tribe or I don't know what it is, but they'll show up and in their little parties, they will get in front of that Wailing Wall and they will dance like madmen in front of that wall. And it's one of the most exhilarating things you'll see. Because, see, they understand that if there's going to be this worship of God, that it entails getting my body in motion, you know, getting me moving, saying, God, we got to create a place for you. If Think of someone who you deeply respect in your life. Think of someone who you really, really respect in your life. And not, not, a, not a person you know personally, but someone in, in, out there, a celebrity or a, or a, a you know, a, a political leader or a preacher or whatever. And, and they were, they're going to show up at your house. Thursday, they're coming to your house, but your schedule's booked all day on Thursday. What are you going to do? Clean the schedule, right? Or maybe they'll show up and you'll throw them the clicker and say, I heard there's good stuff on uh, channel whatever today. Enjoy it. You know, I'll see you at the end of the day. Of course not. And David understands the God of the universe is coming to rest on Mount Zion in the city that he's called me to lead. We're going to throw a party and we're going to give him what's due. Okay? And they're clear it all out, and they're going to make every effort. Every effort. Uh, at, at, uh, I was with some people from a previous congregation, and um, they wanted to take me to a football game, Jen and I to a football game. Remember this, babe, uh, down in Baltimore? We went to that, uh, Bal- that uh, Ravens game. It was a Monday night football game. I don't think I'd ever been to a, a professional regular season football game before. And it was like sub-zero, freezing cold. We had so many layers on. It was crazy. And we come, we come walking out onto the second. We're like this, like the kid from the Christmas story, you know. And we come walking out onto the second level. And we look out. And I look around. And there's all sorts of dudes who have no shirts on, right? 
purple on one side, black on the other, and they're like, ah! you know, I mean, obviously they had a whole bunch of lubrication in them as well, um, and everything, but like, it was crazy, and it was so loud, the place was shaking, and it was like going absolutely nuts, there was the lights, and there was the spirit of the thing, and I stopped for a second and just looked, and I said, wow, this is a worship service, this is a worship service. It really is a worship service. It's not like a worship service. This is a worship service. And clearly, worship is happening right now. You know? It is happening right here on this field. I am watching a worship service. And they are so much better at worshiping than me and my church are. You know? They are awesome at worship. Man, they're like ripping their shirts off and being like, yeah! You know? And I'm like, but God's coming to my living room today. And I'm like, here's the clicker, God. You know, and like there's something missing in there. But David is a worshiper and it says he rips his shirt off and he goes dancing because he's sweating. The dude's in his drawers dancing before the Lord, you know, just like going crazy because he's sweating so bad. And there's everybody's looking at him like, whoa, you know, and because he's just nuts worshiping the Lord because there's nothing else that matters. This is life. Right here, if he will not worship in this moment, then why did he ever live? Because this is what he was designed for. This is what he's designed for. And it says that everybody else was shouting at the top of their lungs. And there's the trumpet blast and there was all this stuff going on because they were about knowing God. And this is why we're told that we are to encourage one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in our hearts. Press one another on more and more, all the more as we see the day approaching that we're to gather together. And that's what this is about as we press each other to go hard after God, to hold on unswervingly to the hope that we have been given. That's what it's about. That's the core of our lives. Get the junk out of the way. David had a tent set up for God, a sacred place. And in our lives, there should be sacred places that are set up for God and God alone and no one else. And we should defend them viciously, whether that's the morning on our couch or whether that's Sunday morning when it comes to us gathering together. But whatever it is, we clear it out and then we prepare for that moment. And we say, man, this is what it's about. I'm going to walk with God all week. But when we come together in that spot, we are going to go hard after God together. It's going to be like what you see at Monday night in Baltimore more when they're playing the Patriots, you know? That's what it's going to look like. And, and, and that's really the call of our lives and the call of the church is to get into that sweet spot. We do realize that this isn't just some king. I mean, this is God showing up at Parker Ford Church every Sunday, showing up at my couch every morning or at my bedside every night. Every time I open the door, God is showing up there. Why? I have no idea. But what I do know is I better make some space. And I better give him some honor. And I better work to clear out the junk that's in the way. Because this here, this body, it belongs to God. We are to offer our bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. The story ends with this terrible, terrible moment. What happens is, is that after David goes in, I don't have time to read it all, but David's wife, Michael, you know who Michael is? uh, David's wife? She's Saul's daughter, okay? And Saul's daughter, um, David, you know how he got her? 
Yeah, first he kills Goliath, and he's supposed to get Saul's daughter as a, as a reward for killing Goliath. But his firstborn daughter, he gives to someone else instead of David, just to spite him, because like, that's the way Saul was, right? But then the second thing, the, sec- then his, the next girl was Michael, and, and Saul was like, oh, man, she's trouble. Let's, give, let's go that way. But David falls in love with her, and she falls in love with David. And David's like, whatever it takes. And Saul says, this is going to be great. I'm going to get David. And you remember what he did? He told him to go kill 100 Philistines in order to get her. Like, here, you just, here's a sword. Go kill a hundred Philistines, and then you can have her. And then picture this room. I don't know how many are in here, but all you against me. Let's go, you know? And that's what he's doing, you know? And he takes the sword, and he kills them all. Kills them all. He loved Michael, and he won her heart legit. Like, he did it the hard way, you know? And he won her heart. And years later, when, when they were married, she's the one who says to David, hey, my dad's about to kill you. Run for your life. And then she stuffs his bed with something to make it look like David. You know? And then Saul comes in and gets all mad at her because she was letting David get away. and She was protecting her husband instead of letting her dad kill him. And he's all mad at her. So then he says, he sends her away and he gives Michael to be married to another man. Years later, when David comes back and he becomes king over Judah in Hebron, he has one request. He sends a request over and he says, I'll become king under one condition. Go get Michael and bring her back to me. That's my girl. That's my girl. You know how much he loved Michael? Man, he was killing Philistines for her. He's dreaming about her. He's thinking about her. He loves her with everything inside. And yet this is what happens. When Michael sees him out there dancing in front of the ark, taking off his shirt and doing all of that, she's worried for two reasons. One, because there's a bunch of servant girls who are watching David sweating with his shirt off. That's legit. That's what it says, you know. And then the second thing is this, is that she's like, that's no way for a king to act. I should know I'm a princess. And she was. And David always had this concern that he was the shepherd boy, and then there's the princess. And I don't deserve to be that. And she's like, you're right, you don't. Look at you, dancing like that. And then David gets up in her face. And this is what he says. You need to remember something. God chose me instead of your dad. And that might look like a king to you. But I never wanted to be king. I wanted to know God. And I didn't dance for servant girls. And I didn't dance for you. I danced for him. And I'll tell you this right now. That I'm going to get more undignified than I already got. And it's going to get uglier. And if you don't like that, it's not going to work out because my life has always been about one thing and it will always be about that one thing. It is about worshiping God. Get on board or get out of Dodge. And she loses the blessing of God on her life because she can't handle it. And it's a sad moment. David actually has to choose his God over his bride. A terrible moment. And yet the cost of worship The cost of following God means that whatever the enemy is, I clear it out. It means that it might cost people's security and safety like Uzzah, but it is what it is. It might cost me some of the relationships that are close to me because people don't like it when I go that hard after God and they feel weird. It doesn't matter. I'm going after God because that's what I was made to do. If I'm going to fulfill the purpose of my life, it's going to be by clearing out the enemy and bringing in the ark. And that's all there is to it. You know, God spoke those words to me a couple years ago. 
He laid it on my heart as I was reading Psalm 132, which is David being all about making a dwelling place for God. And a few years ago, I was sitting there on my couch praying and talking with the Lord, and God just started laying it on me. This is what I want for Parker Ford. Clear out the enemy, bring in the ark. I established my presence in Mount Zion to bless nations all around. If you guys will worship me, and if you'll come after me, I will bless people all around you, neighbors, family members, all sorts of people, but you got to go after me. That's what it's about. Clear the junk out and go after me. Evan has this little book, just got it at the book fair this week at school. And uh, the, the book is Would You Rather? That's the name of the book. And it's this crazy, stupid book. Okay, what it's, it says like this, it's, it's, would you rather, and then it's, would you rather wrestle an alligator or jump off a cliff? Option C, you know, like, no, there isn't. It's, you got to pick this one or this one. Like, would you rather have any wish from a genie or would you rather climb Mount Everest on your own two feet? You know, our lives are a big would you rather book. And David, every time his answer was God. I would rather have God. I'd rather have God than safety and security. I'd rather have God than, than be accepted by King Saul. I would rather have God than see Uzzah live. I would rather have God than my own safety and security in my own home and my palace. I would rather have God than even my wife who I've loved my whole life and I've never done anything against her. But I'd rather have God than any of it because I was created for God and I'm going to go hard after God and this is what we're going to be about no matter what. And the question comes to us at Parker Ford Church all the time. Would you rather? What would you rather? And God, he won't be deceived. He won't be mocked. And the worship place is a bedroom to a marriage, a a dinner table to a family. It's the place where we come together in the most intimate of forms to worship God. This is what it's about. It doesn't matter what we do out there for work or what we do out there. It doesn't matter what we do different all throughout our week. We can worship God in all those ways. But then when we come together, there's this place of worship together. It's right here on a Sunday morning. And God's saying, work for it. Work for it. Put the thing up on your shoulders and get it done. Encourage each other. Praise the Lord. Make it like the Monday night football game except better. Make them wish they had what we had. Because we got to live in God. No idols on the field. Just God on the ark. On the throne. And Jesus has already made the way. No more sacrifices. Blood is taken care of. Enter in to the rest. Enjoy it. Drink deep. The presence of God available for the people of God. Drink deep. And here's the thing. We're not here for us. We work because He deserves it. When we show up in this place, we show up ready to give Him praise. Not because it's what makes us feel good, but because it's what He is worth. And if we're not doing that, we're not getting it yet. We're not getting it yet. What's the next step? For each of us, we're going to go, Corey's going to lead us in, in a song right now. The, the band's going to lead us in a song. And I just want us to get to that spot where we say, God, what's the junk? Clean the enemy out, man. Make the stronghold in my life. Pour it out. Bust the enemy out of there. What's the junk that's standing between? Where am I not following you? Where am I not going after you? What's the next thing, God, for me? You know, I'm a worshiper. Make me a worshiper and a follower of you. What is it today? And if there's a, if, if there's, you know, this is one of those spots where every now and then at the end of a, a sermon, you need response time, you know? And that's what the, the band's going to do as they're saying, this is just time to respond to the Lord. 
And if you need your body in motion, I mean, it'd be a little bit weird if you come up here and start dancing in a circle or whatever, but whatever, you know? But honestly, I mean, if you need to get on your knees, if you need to use the front, if you need to, whatever it is, I don't really care. Nobody's judging here. We're all in the same spot. We need to give ourselves to the Lord. We need to give ourselves to the Lord. Let's do that.